think the theme that we're going to try to follow today is a question on discipleship. How does discipleship relate to our walk with the Lord? And what part does it play in criticism and the slander that the church is prone to attract? I had a discussion this past Tuesday night with some young people at my house and I sent a text to three of them and asked them just with less than 45 minutes, I said, send me a summary of our discussion Tuesday night. And they did. I'd like to just take a minute and try to answer the question, try to frame the question, why do we attract so much heated disagreement and why do we attract so much hatred and vehemence? Why do people not leave us and just become friends? Why do we not agree to disagree? Why do they not say, look, you have different beliefs, we have different beliefs, but we can respect each other as Christians? What is it that so gets under people's skin? Why do they feel the need to destroy us? And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, a lot of them have cleaned up their act now, but behind the surface, there is real vitriol. I'll quote one of them. I want to see the charade of wholesome community come crashing down. Another one says, I want to expose that pretty little community and destroy it. Just real vitriol. And we ask ourselves a lot, why is this? I think that the shortest answer is we don't like any authority except our own. We want to be the gods of our own existence. We want to be the masters of our own fate, to quote a poem. And when any, whenever someone starts to express an authority transcendent to ourselves, we feel that our autonomy, our freedom, therefore, is impinged upon. Jesus said, if one comes in his own name, you will receive him. But because I come in the name of another, you will not receive me. I'm paraphrasing. And he came in the name, and that was the authority of God. If he had just brought good ideas, if he had just added to the discussion, people would have tolerated the Lord Jesus. But because he purported to bring truth that was transcendent both to himself and the opinions of others, because of that, because he came in the name and authority of another, they really hated him. They really, really hated him. And I want to suggest that a primary reason why we sustain so much assault from so-called Christians is because they have a concept and understanding of authority very different from our own. They believe that it is not the place of the church, nor of brothers and sisters in the church, to express God's authority on any meaningful level. Basically, we can just put the information out there and let each man draw his own conclusions. That's pretty much how the modern church approaches the question of authority. And so, authority is necessary for discipleship. And discipleship is necessary, in our view, for ongoing sanctification and conformity to the image and patterns of Christ. And so when people leave us, they hate us 
because we actually believe in confronting each other. We actually believe in discipleship. And whatever fruit we have, it is not because we're superhumans. It's not because we're better than anybody else. It's just because we have submitted to a training course where we have permitted others to have input in our lives, to challenge us, to question us, to gently hold a standard of righteousness that is transcendent to our own opinions. And to the extent that we submit to that discipleship, all of us can be changed. All of us can grow and mature in the grace of God. But to the extent that we reject that discipleship and insist on our own private interpretation of Scripture, to that extent, we will not progress. We will progress no further. I think of Peter saying, understand this first of all. I mean, this is quite a way to introduce whatever he's about to say. Understand this first of all, that no Scripture is of private interpretation. But the holy men of old wrote it down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It seems today that we should understand first of all that in the modern church all Scripture is of private interpretation. And if we're left to interpret things according to our own likes and dislikes, according to our own predilections and instincts, then we are capable of refashioning Scripture into something that supports really whatever we've chosen as our life of choice, as our behavior of choice. And that might be called some form or another of idolatry. So, discipleship. I remember my dad asked me a question, and this is perhaps a common question that you've heard before, but I'm just going to put it out there today as food for thought. He said, we cannot grow without feedback from others concerning our behavior. And everyone understands that that feedback can take on two basic forms, either critical criticism or praise and approval. And we all know that we need both of these. We need God's approval. We need other people's approval. We need feedback that says that was good. And we also need criticism. We also need mirrors that reflect and show us a true image of self that James says we have to look into and, and look at intently and not forget if we would be doers of God's Word. Paul seems to indicate that these mirrors might be the faces of our brothers and sisters. But if you had a choice, if you could only get praise or only get criticism for the rest of your life, if you had to choose one to the exclusion of the other, would you choose praise and approval or would you choose criticism? It's a silly question, but it's reductio ad absurdum. It's getting you to think. It's getting you to contemplate value. I think that we all instinctively know that we should say that we would choose criticism. We don't know what we would choose uh, because we don't have to make that choice. It's a hypothetical. But let's just assume that everybody is saying in their hearts right now, well, I would choose criticism. Let me ask you, why would you choose criticism? You would only choose criticism if you were more afraid of stagnation than hurt feelings or challenges. 
If you were more afraid of stagnation than the criticism, you would choose criticism. If, in fact, you felt that you had reached a static place of acceptable perfection that qualified you and all you wanted was to persuade others of your goodness, then you wouldn't choose criticism, you would choose praise. But if you're terrified of stalling, if, you're, if you dread bottoming out and stagnating in your relationship with God, in your maturity of character, in your function in the gifts of the Spirit, then you would choose criticism because criticism is an accessory toward progress and change specifically. And so we kind of have to link in this whole question of discipleship, which is a form of loving criticism. We have to link it to our view of faith that we've been talking about. If we view faith as a moment in time that settles our salvation forever, then we do not need discipleship. We do not need it, therefore we do not want it, and we hate it when it comes. But if we view faith as a relationship, as Brother Zach stressed last week, a relationship of trust that can also be likened to a journey, when Paul calls it the steps of faith of our father Abraham, then stagnation is what we're terrified of. We want to continue in the faith. We want to hold firm our confession to the end. We want to walk in the path of the righteous that is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter to the full light of day. The song we just sang said, I'm not yet where I'm going, but I'm a long way from where I started. And I'm pressing on. I'll keep pressing on. I'll keep singing the same song. The psalmist says, How blessed is the one whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Passing through valleys of weeping, he'll turn it into a spring of joy. And he'll go from strength to strength, and he will appear before God in Zion. If that is our goal, then we want discipleship because we're terrified of stagnation. Can I give an example from yes, Scripture briefly? Yes, please. I was just thinking of a couple passages, and this is Deuteronomy 8. And maybe we could just answer the question, do you feel that these um, Israelites, do you feel that they're responding with this incredible joy or this incredible privilege that they feel to have been invited into relationship with God and a journey of exodus out of Egypt and into this holy consuming you know, covenant that is with the Lord. Listen in Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So he's saying that he humbled them by not supplying their traditional food out of Egypt in order that they would learn 
that they could live on every word that proceeded out of his mouth. He was trying to invite them into a new type of way of relating to him. But listen in Jeremiah what he says. He says, How I would have set you among my sons, how I would have given you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations, and I thought that you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. It's just something that stands out to me that Scripture is talking about that right off the get-go, as soon as they got saved of the house of sin and bondage, God invited them into a journey of discipline, to discipline them as sons so that they could share in relationship with Him. And no sooner is He bringing the first thing of discipline in, the removal of food of Egypt, so that they would learn that to live on every word that proceeds out of His mouth, as they're rejecting this authority and rejecting this discipline, and they're wanting what? To make sacrifice early, and then rise up and go and live their life the way that they want to live it. They want to know how, again, we keep going back to this, how to solve their God problem and live their life the way that they do. What Brother Ossie is stressing is, is that when our desire for relationship with God is first and foremost, then we are interested in one thing, that He would discipline us that we could share more in Him. And when He brings things into our lives, there are things that we're welcoming. We're not rejecting his authority. We're not rejecting his fatherly instruction. Instead, we're embracing it because we're in agreement that we need an exodus. We need out of ourselves and into the love of God. So, amen. amen. You just quoted or came close to quoting uh, the writer of Hebrews where he says, we all had fathers who disciplined us for a season as they saw fit. But he said, but our heavenly father disciplines us for our good that we may partake of His holiness. We cannot partake of His holiness. We cannot have God's righteous attributes imparted and added to our lives and character except through the medium of discipline. And then I want to ask you why, really alluding to this Deuteronomy 8, why does the writer of Hebrews say, if you are without discipline. You are not sons at all, but you are illegitimate bastards. What is, what is an illegitimate bastard? It's one born outside of covenant. It's one claiming sonship status outside of covenant. So what he's saying is if you want a status of justification before God that does not include the ongoing process of sanctification through discipline, through discipleship, you're an illegitimate bastard. He's saying you're trying to claim sonship status, but you don't want what that relationship really entails, which is the ongoing conformity to the image of God's Son through discipleship. I think it's really the same thing that Paul is saying in Philippians Four, I think it is, where he says, Do everything without grumbling or complaining, that you may become blameless and pure children of God. And think about this. He's saying, Do everything without grumbling and complaining, that you may become 
blameless sons of God. So what he's telling us is that what your flesh would grumble at is the very thing that God uses to make you a son. Isn't that the same thing as what he's saying in, the, in Hebrews? What your flesh would grumble at is the very thing that God uses to make you sons. Now this grumbling and complaining is what marked the children of Israel in the wilderness who died and who did not inherit the promised land. With many of them, God was not well pleased. They grumbled. They complained in unbelief. They did not endure hardship as discipline. God narrowed their life. God caused them to depend on Him and a relationship of trust whereby they would receive manna from heaven instead of the work of their hands and whereby they would receive water from the rock and all of these, these provisions that entailed relationship. But they didn't like that. They wanted things, they wanted water from a tap, so to speak, and bread from the store, perhaps. They didn't want this interdependent relationship with their father. And so they grumbled and they did not become blameless and pure sons of God. But in the New Testament, Paul is saying, stop grumbling because the things that you grumble at really represent the opportunities for you to trust God and become a partaker of His holiness. You've got to think that the very events of your life that you're inclined to grumble at the most, if you do, if you grumble at them, you abort the sonship that God would reveal through them. You don't grumble at joyous things. You grumble at hardship. You murmur and complain at hardship. Have discipline. He's saying the same thing as in Hebrews. If you're without discipline, you are illegitimate. And Somebody says, well, I've already accepted Christ as my Savior. Well, he's writing to, to Christians in Hebrews. But you can retroactively undo your adoption by rejecting the ongoing process of discipleship. Anybody jump in whenever they want. Can Go I ahead, just, brother. I just want to say one. You started out with the question, would we want criticism or would we want praise? You said we live, Brother Zach just shared about how we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I just think in Hebrews, right when the writer of Hebrews is talking about the failure of the children of Israel to enter into his rest, he begins describing the word of God that we live by. And one of, it, one of the words there, it describes it as it says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I always find it interesting that the word discerner there is the Greek word kritikos. Is that right? It is. If you actually, if you go to your dictionary, I just, I just did it on, on the Merriam-Webster, and you look up the word critical, scroll down, and you'll see the word kritikos down there listed as part of the etymology. Is that right? So we have to be really careful that when the Word of God is moving in our lives, and we're tempted to say, why is this so critical all the time? You know what? It may be the love of God it may be the Word of God that we've got to love, we've got to live, we've got to eat into it, and we've got to say, this is discerning something. Amen. And oftentimes what it's discerning, it's not what we think are our outward actions. Yes. It says it discerns, or it criticizes, yes. the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Amen. Something that we don't know apart from the mirror, the discipleship, the relationships. 
we've got to have, we need those other perspectives. And I just wanted to add that, that I just think it's interesting that God give us, give us discernment to recognize when the discernment is coming. And I wouldn't be so dismissive of criticism. Amen. Sometimes it, it's the Word of God, often. It's constructive. <laughs> Amen. So why do we not like it? Why do we instinctively avoid and eschew criticism? Why? What is the instinct that is kicking against criticism? It's based on an assumption. And the assumption is that the Lord disciplines those He hates and scourges every son He rejects. It is confusing criticism with rejection. We need to be accepted. We need to be part of the family. We need to be loved by God. We need to be His Son. And the devil tells us the Lord disciplines those He hates and scourges every son He rejects. But the Bible tells us exactly the opposite. The Lord disciplines those He loves and scourges every son He receives. So the very thing that we misconstrue as rejection is intended by God as proof of acceptance. And let me give you an example. How many of you have been in Walmart or some department store when you heard a kid screaming bloody murder? That kid irritated you and his behavior was troubling. You worried about it, but you didn't go over there and deal with it. You didn't talk to him. You didn't take him by the hand. You didn't take him out to the car. You didn't do anything. Why? Because he's not your son. When you see at a party, you see some little kid do something that is, you know, some kind of misbehavior. If you think that's your son, you go lunging toward that kid. And when you realize it's somebody else's boy, you back off. You discipline those you love and you scourge every son you accept. When God engages with us, He's saying, that's my boy. And I'm responsible, the Lord is saying, to modify His behavior to be consistent with my glory. And when He leaves us to our own devices, that is judgment. When God surrenders us to our independence, that is judgment. He will turn you over to your own devices, your own wishes. They will eat the fruit of their own fancies. That's how the Old Testament describes judgment. But when He engages us, He's showing us that we're His Son and He's our Father. So we hate discipline because we think it's rejection. Why do we think discipline is rejection? Because we think that we are accepted based on our performance. We think that we are accepted because we have reached some kind of qualified status. We have become good enough. And this is wrong. We are accepted based on our position in a relationship. That relationship can be ruptured by our behavior. But it is not, that does not correlate. It's a non sequitur to reverse that and say that relationship, therefore, is performance-based. It is not. It is relationally based. It comes from the heart. It comes from faith. It comes from the trust that we maintain in our Heavenly Father and the love that He maintains for us. We hate correction. I'm going to be a little repetitive because this is a little bit of an enigma. We hate correction 
because we think that we are accepted because we became good enough. This is a lie. We are accepted because we joined the process of becoming and we bound ourselves in a covenant that we would never quit becoming, we would never quit changing, we would never quit striving to be more like Him. So let me bear this out a little bit. Somebody says, I want to be baptized. If they have a responsible pastor, he's going to say, I'm not sure you're ready. But what the flesh hears is, I need to be better. I need to qualify. I need to pass a test. So then when the pastor says, okay, I think you're ready, the flesh hears, you're perfect enough. So then after baptism, when the pastor comes and says, I'd like to talk to you about something that concerned me in your behavior, the flesh says, what? I was already baptized. I thought I was good enough. Now you're telling me that I'm not good enough. And the Lord's like, no, 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 that's not how this works. But the flesh says, I wasn't allowed to be baptized until I became good enough, and then I became good enough, and that's what made me accepted. No, no, no. You were not baptized because you became good enough. You were baptized because your distrust in flesh became deep enough and profound enough that we could accept you who truly had faith in God. Amen. Yes, that faith had fruits of behavior that proved to us that it was from God. So there was behavior involved, but you didn't qualify as worthy. It is by grace that we are saved, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. You did not qualify as good enough and reach some static place. And therefore, when discipline comes, you should not see that as the undoing or the negation of your static place of perfection, qualifying you for a static place in relationship. No. No, you showed that you trusted your Father. You showed that you trusted Him so much that you would let go of your own autonomy, and your own rights, and your own false godhood, and you would accept His Lordship, His Spirit, His Word. And based on that, we baptized you into an ongoing walk of submission, not because you qualify. You know, the best of us, when we die, we're not going to be good enough. Amen? We're not going to qualify based on our behavior for heaven. We're going to qualify for a relationship of ongoing trust and faith. And based on that, he will impute everything that is lacking that would otherwise exclude us from heaven. So let me just recap this real quick and then I'm going to turn it back over. Why do we hate discipleship? Why do we hate discipline? Because we mistake it as rejection. Why do we mistake it as rejection? Because we think our acceptance is based on a static place of perfection. That turns us into a legalist. And the worst legalists are the ones who speak the loudest against legalism. They are those who think they qualified based on some minimum of confession or some minimum of sinner's prayer or accepting Jesus as my Savior. But what you were doing, hopefully, was committing to a relationship that is a process of transformation. If salvation is based on a static faith, then discipleship is totally useless. But the Bible makes that impossible when it says 
You're not a son unless you undergo discipline. In, in fact, you retroactively turn yourself into a bastard. You undo Christ's paternal relation to yourself when you reject discipline. Okay. We do have a question uh, that has come in. We've been asked to clarify what we mean by the word discipline as prescribed biblically. The word discipline in English in the Bible is most often derived from the Greek word paideo, and I don't know if I'm getting that perfectly, but the Greek word paideo means first to train, then to educate. It means to bring the kind of influence of critical advice and, and correction into someone's life that enables them to see their faults and press toward the high calling of God. So I'm just going to give some examples in my life. I started my public ministry at a very young age, and I would come home every evening, and I would share with my dad what I had taught or what I had preached in various settings, and he would give me a lot of feedback. Being raised in his house and taught by him, I attributed all my success to the training that I received from him. And that training was a lot of teaching, and a lot, it was a lot of instruction. I still remember after several years, my dad came to, my, to the first meeting where he heard me preach. And I was more than a little anxious about it. <laughs> Those of you who know him knew the gift that he had and the character. And I remember him sitting out in the audience, and I wanted it to be really profound. And um, I made the mistake that night of pursuing what I should minister instead of pursuing the burden of love for God's people. And I shared some things, and I'm sure there was the occasional nugget of truth in it. But afterwards, I went to my dad's car, and I leaned on his windowsill, and uh, he was trying to be as encouraging as he could, but he had some things to share with me. He told me how I had let my feelings get ahead of my word. He told me how in my delivery I had obscured my message. And it was just this criticism, helpful, loving, fatherly criticism. And it wasn't easy for him and it wasn't easy for me. But he wasn't there to approve me in some static place. He was there to bless my progress, but help me move a few steps down the road. And that's discipline. That's discipline. Discipline is obeying Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if your brother sins, go to him and show him his faults. Mine wasn't so much of a sin. It was just an immaturity. Discipline also comes in Matthew 18. Jesus says, show him his faults. And if he hears you, then you have gained your brother indicating that his fault ruptures the relationship, but only receiving correction restores the relationship. Quote, you have gained your brother. So then if he doesn't hear you, take another with you, and if he won't hear them, take it before the church. Now, the final, if, if someone refuses to hear this multitude of counsel, especially about sin, then the Bible gives us very clear guidelines for how we put a brother under formal discipline, which is more referring to uh, levels of fellowship where we say this sinning brother will not hear us. And then we do abide by Paul's and John's and Jesus's requirements for formal church discipline. But what I'm primarily speaking of is brothers showing other brothers their faults. 
in a loving, encouraging way, but in a way that is based on conviction and not suggestion. What's interesting is in Titus 2.11, Paul says, the grace of God that brings salvation. So perhaps there are other kinds of graces, but the one that brings salvation, he says, has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness, to deny worldly pleasures, and to live sensibly and godly in this present age. Now the word he uses, teaching there, is the word discipline. It's the word paideo. Your Bibles change it to teaching there, but it's the word often translated as disciplining us. So it could be properly rendered, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared as an active agent continuing to disciple us or discipline us to do these things, to say no to ungodliness. The first thing the grace of God, the saving grace of God does in Paul's view is it trains us to say no to ungodliness. Then it trains us to deny worldly pleasures. Then it trains us to live sensibly and godly, righteously, in this present age. Grace is not an exemption from requirement. It is not an exemption from penalty. It is an active agency of God's Spirit. It's called the Spirit of grace that disciples us. So if grace is not inert and dead, then it should be teaching believers these three things. Now what's interesting is in 1 Peter 4.10, the apostle says to the church, you all are good stewards of the manifold grace of God, administering it in its various forms. So this saving grace that has appeared to all men that is active to disciple us in three basic ways is a grace that we share with each other, that we give one to another. And we're not supposed to do it. This is also where he says, if any man speaks, let him speak as the very oracle of God. If any man serves, let him serve with the strength which God supplies. So true grace is not exemption. It is an active agent that is teaching us to say no. And this grace is expressed from brothers and sisters because they are stewards or ministers of the manifold grace of God. So if I want saving grace, I actually need to be around people who Peter calls good stewards of the manifold grace of God, who will minister that grace to say no, that grace to deny, and that grace to live into my life. Well, you sort of answered the question I was going to ask. Um, I apologize. There's, no, there's another part to I just it, didn't want to forget my... <laughs> no, amen. That's good. That's good. Well, I'll give an example. I, I think that a lot of uh, instances that I've seen within the church, people want to be held accountable individually and personally between them and God. The big question is, is okay, I understand Matthew 18. Um, I do understand that brothers and sisters can come alongside one another and and, and help that process along, uh, but how can I trust them? How can I know that this brother is actually bringing discipline that is from God? I was actually told once by a pastor, when I mentioned needing to see some changes in some men, because I saw some things that were concerning, you need to be careful because you don't know what's going on inside their hearts. 
And so you basically judging based on what you're seeing, this behavior and so on and so forth, you've got to be really careful with that. It was almost a warning of don't go trying to speak into someone's life if you don't know what's really going on on the inside. And I, I think a lot of us will appeal to a personal relationship, personal accountability. You know, it's me and God. And if I do believe that brothers can bring instruction, rebuke, discipline, admonishment, all of these things, how can I trust that it's from the Lord? Well, first of all, we don't trust the flesh. Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he knew the heart of man. This doesn't mean that I don't trust you. But what I trust is your surrendered submission to the God I trust, to the Spirit I trust. And if I have the Spirit and I know the Spirit, then the Spirit bears witness with my spirit when you're bringing something to me that I know is from God. So the ultimate proof is the anointing. That's where we have that witness, that confirmation that someone is speaking to us from love and from truth. Now, you said a lot, but there are different kinds of transgression. There are transgressions that rely on great discernment, and then there are transgressions that simply do not, that are transparent. Amen. His sin can become evident to all, to quote Scripture. So there are different kinds of discipleship because there are different kinds of transgression. So we cannot expect to see spiritual fatherhood and discipleship in a church that does not believe in the reality of God's presence and the baptism of His Holy Spirit among believers. So if we've all been baptized in the Spirit and cultivated a relationship with God through the Spirit, then that's our protection because we know the feeling and the voice and the, the quality, the timbre of the Spirit's voice. And so when it's coming to us, we are sheep who know His voice and a voice of a stranger we will not follow. So discipleship apart from the Holy Spirit is disaster. <laughs> but discipleship that is really an expression of the Holy Spirit is life. And we have to get to a place where we can trust the gifts of God, not the flesh of a man, but the gifts of God and, and the relationships God has given us. Paul says that I treated you as a son with his children, as a nursing mother with her babes. So there is a relationship of trust that these people had with those who brought God's Word to them. What is fatherhood? Well, we are begotten of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. Those who bring that incorruptible Word into our life and bears fruit, we know those teachers by the fruit that their Word produces, not just in their lives, but in our lives. And so this is a process that increases. When we first encounter someone anointed by the Lord or a teaching that is anointed by the Spirit, we're not going to have the full measure of trust right off the bat. It's going to grow. It's going to be tested. It's going to be approved by God. We know that this has got to be the goal because when Paul writes the Galatians, he says, you received me. Paul's a man. Paul's not perfect. He tells us in Philippians, I have not been perfected. But he tells them, you have received me as an angel of God. And then he says, you have received me as Christ Jesus himself. Was that idolatry? 
for the Galatians to receive the Apostle Paul as an angel or as Christ Jesus himself? He wasn't saying that he had taken Christ's place, and he wasn't saying that they were worshiping him as we should worship Christ. He was saying they trusted the presence of God in this man's ministry. Remember, his teaching was not with persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that their faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, there's the persuasive words, but in the power of God. So he produced faith, but it wasn't faith in man. It wasn't faith in his intellect, his cleverness. It wasn't even faith in his affection as a mortal. He produced faith in God because he operated in the gifts of God. And they, didn't, they viewed him as Christ Jesus, not in the sense that he was all the fullness, but that he was a legitimate expression of Christ. And this is what Christ intended. For he said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Paul wrote the Thessalonians also, and he said, We praise you, brethren, that you received our word, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth the word of God that works in you effectively who believe. So, first of all, it's not the word of God that we're speaking unless it's anointed by God. Just because we're opening scripture and quoting accurately doesn't mean we're speaking the word of God. Satan quoted Scripture accurately, but it was not the Word of God. It was the Word of the devil. So we have to first understand what God's Word is, what it feels like, what it sounds like. We have to increasingly know those who labor among us and know their fruit, the fruit of righteousness in their lives, the fruit of their words in our lives. And over time, we come to a place of increasing trust where we can say, this brother has my best interests at heart. This brother has more for me than mere human affection or phileo. This brother loves me with Christ's love. And, and I can trust him because I know I've got a flesh that's trying to sabotage my development. I know I've got a flesh that doesn't like discipleship. But I also know he sent me people who can see an angle that I'm missing. And I can open my heart, not to the flesh, but to, but to God. And I can receive them as Christ, not as the fullness of Christ, but as a legitimate expression, a piece of that mosaic of the Lord Jesus. I just think about maybe some of it is helpful if we're defining terms and we're understanding what we mean. Sin, if we were to look at that, is wrongly relating to God and wrongly relating to one another. If we were to say sin, it can be defined as that. It's called missing the mark or different things we could look at. But we could say it's wrongly relating to God and wrongly relating to one another. It then becomes if someone is disciplining us, what they are doing is they are showing the ways, the molds, the patterns, the habits, the inward attitudes of heart that cause us to wrongly relate to God or wrongly relate to our brothers and sisters. And so when discipline, you know, going back to this question, what is, you know, what exactly is discipline biblically defined? It is anything that's getting you to start to rightly relate with God and rightly relate to others. Amen. I mean, anything. Look at Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us on Him. We have set our hope. Amen. So He says, listen, sickness came upon us for one reason, 
as a disciplining hand in order to teach us to not rely on ourselves, but in the one who raises the dead. And that moment of discipline caused us to set our hope so firmly in God that we felt the power of God come back into our work of ministry. Amen. You know, he goes on in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. He then goes on to say, Make room in your heart for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. He's saying that, you know what, something has changed relationally between us and you're closing off to us. Our hearts aren't restricted towards you in the least bit, but your hearts are restricted. And he said, open wide your heart that we might have this type of relationship again, that you might hear these words of instruction and it might change your course is what he's appealing to. And what, what is he really appealing to? He's saying that you still agree that your exodus, your process is to come out of self and to come in to a true relationship as a son, to someone who lives for the love of God and lives to bring honor and renown to God's name. He's saying that you made your exodus. Your faith began at a place in which you said, I must be free of myself. And that cross of self-denial, it's the entry to be baptized into him is to lose my own identity and to be raised up by his power into a newness of life. He says, you came on that journey and every word of instruction that I've given you, Paul would, would say, is a word of instruction that has caused you to rightly relate to God and rightly relate to your brothers and sisters. That's every word that I've given you. I've never given you a word that was self-seeking or a word that in some way, you know, helped me out. I was giving you words and you know it. If you were to really look at it, if you were to really say, what is the goal of this instruction? The goal of this instruction has been to get us to love God more with all of our heart and to start selflessly loving one another according to God's pattern and design. So, you know, I think that Biblical discipline can come in just about any variety at all. In the, in the uh, epistle that Peter wrote that we put in First Peter, he, 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 he says in three different situations, he says to governing authorities, submit unto them. And he tells them for they're not just submitting to that governing authority, but they're trusting in God's authority even to have that submission work in them a glory that God is preparing for them. Amen. He says to them then also, to those who are submitting to terrible masters, do it and do it as so unto the Lord. And if you suffer unjustly under that man, do it with all the more glory for God sees it and he's using it to shape your life. He then goes on, he says, how about wives? And he says, submit unto your husband. Well, just the good ones, right? No, he says, even those that don't submit to the word of God. He says that they may be one without a word. And this is what he concludes at the end of that. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Amen. So he's saying that the fiery trials that they're in, these are the disciplining hand uh, of the Lord in order to produce one thing, an increased love for God, and an increased love for others. Amen. And he's saying all of it is being used. And so if even a, a terrible husband or an emperor in Rome can be used in these methods, then surely our brothers, Amen. that in some way we know 
have a heart to seek God and care about our good, care about us coming out of bondage and out of our you know, broken frameworks of thought and attitudes, Amen. surely we can start entrusting ourselves in those relationships as well. When you're just saying that and you're quoting those passages about submission to governing authorities, and you think about every single time when the Bible tells us to submit, whether parents or wives or disciples, it does not leave us guessing as to who the beneficiary is Amen. of this submission. We do not submit to benefit the one over us. We submit to benefit the one submitting. So he says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. He says, Submit to those who have the rule over you and be obedient, for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Amen. David submitted to King Saul. Saul was rejected by God. Saul was a bankrupt basket case. Amen. And yet David's submission did not benefit Saul, but it benefited David. Amen. So submission just describes the configuration that sponsors humility and humility that sponsors grace and grace that brings salvation. If we want to be saved by the grace of God, we have to maintain a posture of humility. Paul submitted to an affliction that the Lord put in his side because he said through it, God humbled him so that he would not become exalted because of his revelations. So God gives us even physical compensations that we can hate, resent, or we can submit to. He gives us hardships. He gives us tragedies. And I don't mean he sends them. Sometimes the devil sends them. Paul said, I received a messenger from Satan, a thorn in my side. But he didn't ask the devil about that thorn. He asked God about that thorn. And God used that thorn. And Paul submitted to that thorn, and he didn't get the devil's message. He got God's grace. Amen. Amen. So that's the purpose of submission is to help us maintain the right attitude so that grace keeps flowing into our lives. And if grace, then salvation will flow. 